Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, Dan Madden, founder of Madden Equipment, and Mike Valvano, former president at Madden, join the history of gear to talk about how Madden stood out from early pack companies and the rise, acquisition, sunsetting, and revival of the brand today. So welcome back, everyone. Um, this is Chase, and joining me today um, to talk about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry, once again, on our History of Gear series, um, we've got Mike Valvano, um, the former president of Madden Equipment, and uh, currently a consultant in the outdoor industry, and Dad, Dan Madden, founder of Madden Equipment. Um among many other things, I and mean, we were talking off air about all the other things that you're you're still working on, um, and maybe we'll get into some of that today as well. But uh, thank you for both for being here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, um, Mike. We had you here on campus in the archives, and uh, you know, I could you just have such a passion for the history of the industry. Came you know out from from Boulder to check out our archives, and we got talking, and you looped me in with Dan. And I was just as excited to dig into this company that I'm not as familiar with the history of the company. So this is a treat for me to just dig in and learn a little bit more about Dan, how this all came together and Mike, how you got involved. But I just appreciate Mike, you bringing us all together and, and your passion um, in particular for, for the history of the industry. And oh, I'm, I'm um, a fanboy, Chase. I'm, I'm like an outdoor industry fanboy. It's pretty much it. So uh, <laughs> coming to see your archives I could have, I could have uh, booked a whole week out there. So, um, you know, I only got through, through a little bit, but I'll tell you what was really fun too, was, was actually seeing some of the catalogs that I had, you know, an old Campmore catalog that I received and going and seeing, you know, some of the gear that I bought during that year, you know, those kinds of things. It's, it's great. I love it. I, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. It's, uh, um, it's, it's gratifying and, and in a way somewhat validating too. So it's, uh, and, and I think one thing that, that's great about it also that I think maybe, maybe uh, you know, when we talk about archives, we can kind of forget about, but it's a sense of community. And, and I think within the outdoor industry, that's something that's always been, you know, right at the core. And, and, you know, Dan was saying earlier, you know, hey, just happened to be in Boulder when there were a lot of other cool people doing cool things to go do cool stuff in the outdoors. And it was a community. And that's 
the feeling that I got from, you know, from what the, uh, from the efforts that you're doing at Utah State. Well, I, I want to dig into that, the community aspect for sure, because Dan, you were in the heart of so much happening in the industry and, and part of like a, a heritage of great gear companies. We'll, we'll dig into that, but I, I guess I want to go back a little further. Um, maybe a more fundamental question, Dan, when, when did you first get involved in the outdoor, in the outdoors or what was your first connection to the outdoors? Not even the industry, but just outdoor recreation in general. Well, I, I, it's one of those things where you kind of don't know that you're actually in something, so to speak, because back then, and we're talking the late or the sixties, seventies, where outdoors, certainly backpacking, those kind of things was, I don't know, you, you, you always, well, at least people thought of me as kind of weird because I'd want to go sleep on the ground somewhere. And, uh, but our family always did outdoor stuff. I grew up pretty much in the foothills of East Tennessee, the Smoky Mountains in that area. And, and we were always, and we lived on kind of on a farm that uh, had been homesteaded by the family, you know, in the 1800s. And so we had 1,200 acres of mountains to roam and streams and those kind of things. So, Outdoors just kind of came naturally and grew up, um, got affiliated with different groups, especially scouting. We were fortunate enough to have a scoutmaster who was more concerned about doing stuff than earning merit badges. Kind of had a slogan, if you want to work on a merit badge, I'll help you. But if you want to go paint park benches, that's great. But if you'd rather be out hiking, then that's what we're going to do. So remember when I was probably 13, 14, we hiked the uh, Appalachian Trail through the Smokies, which is 72 miles in like six days. And I think that kind of cemented my uh, future, so to speak. It's like, hey, we didn't have the greatest gear in the world, you know, a lot of army surplus stuff, but uh, we had a great time. It's like, wow, this this could be fun. So, um, that's, that's kind of the way it's kind of like I've always been in the outdoors, so to speak. I, I just had a conversation. We, uh, this isn't published yet, but we, uh, we interviewed John Mead, um, of a 16 and, uh, you know, a, a part of that story is similar, right? Where Mick Mead was involved in the local scouting troops and that's yeah. how he got connected with, with product and, you know, started building his own packs and products. And so it, it is interesting when you look at some of these different companies, that origin being scouting, or that's the first introduction right. for a lot of people. Let's see, Mike, what about you? First introduction to the outdoor, outdoor recreation, and then the outdoor industry beyond that. Oh, so, well, I, I, when I was younger, I was living in rural Pennsylvania. We were a couple of blocks from the Delaware river. And so, you know, halcyon days, you know, you're, you're a kid, you come home from school and you just run around. That's all you do. You just go run around in the woods and we made our own trails. We hiked wherever, you know, built forts, all those kinds of things. And then uh, my early teens, my family moved to suburban New York, a very different environment, something kind of taken away from me in a way. And by the time I got to later teens, right, you're itching for, uh, you know, that sense of freedom starts to emerge and that need to, to be out on your own. So you buy some some cheap wheels and, uh, you know, and, and you get out into the woods as, as fast as you can. And, you know, it started out 
a little closer to home, right? You go to maybe, I was living in suburban New York, so we'd go to Bear Mountain State Park in New York, right? But hey, it's real pretty. There are trails and you have a good time. You sleep outside and you get a little further and you go up to the Adirondacks and you hike Mount Marcy and then you go to Shenandoah and you're on the Appalachian Trail. And then I had the opportunity to go to school and uh, I basically picked a place that was really beautiful and it went to see you. And so I moved out here to Boulder in the mid 80s and uh, <clears throat> decided I was going to spend as much time as I could outdoors. And, you know, it was it was great. Now you could hike 14ers. Uh, mountain biking was emerging. Right. Uh, climbing was really starting to catch on in the U.S. And there's great climbing here. So I could stay pretty active. And uh, while I was in school, that's when I, I first, <clears throat> I guess, started to learn that there was some kind of business around this. And <clears throat> when I was a kid, you know, say it, was, say it was in the early 70s, someone asked me what I wanted to do. You know, I was in elementary school and I said, well, I'm going to live out west and I'm going to make sporting goods. <laughs> I, was, I knew exactly what I was going to be involved in. And so when I got here, Okay, I'm living out west, box checked. And uh, then I meet a guy who's offering an internship to make a rock climbing accessory. Second box checked. So I went in and it was a company called Etho Chalk. And we made a pigmented rock climbing chalk because uh, the white climbing chalk was uh, a little controversial at the time in terms of aesthetics in the natural environment. And so this was a, a solution for that. And so I did that in college. And then right after college, I went and joined Madden and uh, worked in customer service. That's great. Dan, what about you? When did you discover that there was a whole industry behind behind all this? One of our students, um, when, when she transferred to our program, it was because when she was on a long distance pack, backpacking trip, you know, days on end, she was staring at the pack in front of her and she started to analyze it and look at, okay, all the features. And, and then she really started to think, well, someone made that thing. Like people get paid to make that thing. Did you have a similar moment where you realized, okay, like people make this stuff that I like to enjoy. What was that moment for you? Well, probably more than in a moment. It was actually, I guess, to go back to the mother of necessity and I was working for North Carolina Outward Bound uh, while in college during the summer. Uh, and the first summer I was there, we were like NC6. So we were like a, the sixth course that had been through there. And we were based out of uh, North, I mean, Morganton, North Carolina, which is right on the edge of wilderness, the Linville Gorge wilderness area, Grandfather Mountain, Mount Mitchell, that area, beautiful area still today. Anyway, long story short is when I first got there as an instructor, an assistant, uh, there wasn't a lot of equipment. A lot of it was just army surplus ponchos that they'd go buy for eight bucks. And um, our packs were Caramore packs. And they actually had them shipped from the UK because in the hills of North Carolina, Tennessee, there's this stuff called rhododendron and everything, Mount Laurel, which bushwhacking, which is one of their favorite activities, um, was not fun with a frame pack, put it that way. And so the problem is that the packs were, I mean, about as basic as you could get. It was essentially a sack with a tie-down lid, a couple pockets on the side, and literally seatbelt webbing for shoulder straps. 
And to say they were uncomfortable was an understatement. So the next year we, uh, or the school bought uh, an internal frame. I won't mention the name, but uh, essentially it was great uh, for the first course. And you have to remember an outward bound course then was 26 days. And, you know, and if you get your average backpacker, uh, 26 days backpacking would be considered an avid you know, backpacker, outdoors person. And um, they basically didn't make it through the summer. I mean, it just, it, they, they had the wrong material, the wrong whatever. So at that time, I was kind of making some of my own gear because I've always been that kind of person who likes to make stuff, not necessarily as a designer. Um, and all of that is to say that I didn't even know there was an outdoor industry out there other than an REI catalog. Because when you're an outward bound, you have no communication with the outside world. <laughs> but uh, I mean, literally, I mean, the world could have come to an end and we would still been hiking and camping. Um, but uh, long story short is my grandmother's trade, so to speak, um, was as a professional seamstress. She'd make wedding dresses and, pretty high level stuff. And it just kind of a coincidence where she kind of retired, so to speak. And she had this singer sewing machine sitting there. It's like, can I use that to make something? And so she taught me how. And so uh, being ignorant uh, at the time, you know, I'd made some packs just for my own self. And so the school director said, do you think you could come up something better with than this? And, uh, Sure, what do you want? You know, duh. And uh, anyway, long story short, as we came up with just what we call a basic rucksack, but it had, to, you know, the essentials of an internal frame, uh, padded waist belt, padded shoulder straps. And their biggest requirement, strangely enough, was uh, no zippers because zippers fail. So um, that kind of started the business. And I, at the time, the school fortunately had an industrial um sewing machines setting in a platform tent that they used to repair tents and things like that, but nobody knew how to use it. So I had a little bit of experience. So I got everything set up and we literally, I literally made something like 85 uh, packs, you know, in a couple of months to get ready for the summer. And they kind of took off. Um, other schools, you know, found out about them. So um, and started making them for them. And this one thing leads to another. And in that time, working for North Carolina for four years, they started a program um, at CU, uh, a master's degree in experiential ed. And they asked if I would go, quote unquote, move to Boulder, <laughs> Mike. <laughs> and, uh, you know, be kind of part of part of the pilot program. And said, sure. I mean, I'd been to Boulder a couple of times climbing and stuff. And long story short is uh, that's when I kind of moved from North Carolina to Boulder and kind of during working on my master's, we kind of started a company at that time um, because it was like more than I could do, so to speak. So as, as far as the outdoor industry per se, there wasn't a huge one because companies like North Face, Patagonia, Sierra Designs, all of the Calibar, they didn't start to the early 70s for the most part. So there was not really an industry um, 
like obviously we have today and that kind of stuff and certainly no internet or, or that kind of thing. So it's kind of like you were working in a vacuum. And then when you work in Boulder, you had low Alpine, you had how you bar, you had camp seven, you had Alpine designs, you had all these other companies and you kind of like not necessarily bonded together, but, uh, I mean, Lowe and us, even though we were competitors, it's like I knew the production manager and she was great. And it's like, hey, you have any two-inch webbing? We're out. Sure, come over and get some. And then we repay them. And then they call us, well, we're out of one-inch buckles. Can you help us? And it's like, sure. So we were kind of like a community that worked together just to keep things rolling. I think that's that's interesting, just knowing like the landscape of the outdoor industry at that time. Like you said, it was a little bit of a vacuum, right? It's like all around the country, people were working on, on maybe similar things or I don't, they were all kind of doing their own thing, but depending on the region that you were in, I mean, those that you were aware of, I mean, what companies were you aware of at the time um, that were kind of playing in the same space that you looked to or, or saw as competitors or maybe were even inspired by? Yeah. I mean, we were obviously small enough that we weren't really competitive with anybody. Uh, to be blunt, uh, we just kind of did our own thing. We were busy. We were happy just to get orders. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, most from what I remember, and certainly Mike can add to this, is there was Boulder with the aforementioned companies and probably a few others. Um, and then, of course, Seattle uh, was a big, you know, especially with REI, even though they didn't make their own products at that time. They were kind of the hub. And um then you had Berkeley, um, kind of the three triangles. And there were some people on the East Coast. I remember a company called Chuck Roast, um, you know, and, and EMS was back there. And there, when you work, when, when I was working for Outward Bound, there's like the two most coveted items on the entire mountain. Um, I mean, we were 20 miles from any town. So when you got mail, it was like, oh, what's this? And it's like, soon as the REI catalog would come or the EMS catalog, everybody would just scoop it up and kind of like almost hide it to keep somebody from stealing it. From it. So, uh, but those, those are the, the companies I remember. Um, I remember the first time I, when I, when I went to school, I went to the university of Tennessee in Knoxville and we had a pretty, I'd call it active group, but there was only probably a, the most a dozen of us. I was kind of the one of the odd ducks walking around campus with hiking boots, blue jeans, and a day pack and a down jacket. Um, didn't quite fit in with the frat boys, uh, that that kind of thing. And um, you were actually considered a little bit weird, you know. So from that point, but we had a group that would just go do stuff. We were literally one guy had the unfortunate. Um, I don't know what, what you would call it, but he owned a Chevy van and five or six of us would fit in there. And so what do you want to do? Because at the time UT was on quarters, not semesters. So we didn't start school to the third week in September. And we were, I was through with my outward bound job before Labor Day. And it's like, where do you want to go? Let's go to Colorado. So we'd literally drive all night. You know, one year we went to uh, Mount Rainier to climb that. We did that. But, you know, one of the more amazing uh, experiences is going into the old REI store. I don't know, who, you know Mike, if you've ever been there, but it was yeah. an old Mercedes dealership and all the floors were still creosote, uh, literally. 
<laughs> but I remember walking into this room and there was, there was nothing but ice axes and crampons because we had to buy those for Rainier. And uh, it's like, wow, this, this is pretty cool, you know? And that's kind of when you discover there's an outdoor industry. When did, what was the moment you felt like the company was ready to go? You were ready to go all in. So like 1974, is that when it, the company? Well, was I mean, if you, if you go back, go back to the outward bound days, it was probably more like 71, 72, okay. but it was just kind of like me. Uh, no, when I, I finished my master's degree in the fall or this December of 75, moved out in 74, year and a half. And at the time I was doing it, but I was still doing it um, pretty much by myself um, and studying and all that stuff. But anyway, I graduated. And so my wife and I were kind of like, well, what do we do now? <laughs> it's like, well, let's just try this because we were just kind of over our heads, so to speak, trying to get things done. So we incorporated, you know, and got a little bit of funding from family and friends and rented some space. And that's kind of when we actually became the official at the time Madden Mountaineering. And we did that for a while. And then uh, I don't remember the exact date, Mike, you may know, but it's around probably around eighties or so Rob Lewis um, was actually my uh, neighbor uh, in the industrial space. He was next door. He owned a, a water company that supplied water to people in the mountains that wells had run dry. And, but he also had this idea of making this little survival kit called pack kit. And so he was kind of doing that next door and I was doing this. And so you kind of get together and, and it's like, you know, we could probably use some help and funding and all that stuff. <laughs> Cause we were, you know, we were probably up to maybe 12 people um, sewing and shipping and, and all that stuff in a thousand square feet. And we were kind of running out of space. And so he said, yeah, we'll do that. And then he had a friend uh, from college, uh, Mike Donnelly, I think it was in Eugene, Oregon at the time. And uh, anyway, they moved down. So we kind of formed Madden Equipment, or actually technically known as Alpine Map Company. Don't ask me why. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but that was kind of like, and then we moved into a much bigger space, 5,000 square feet. And we just started, you know, Rob would do more of the sales and all that stuff. Mike would do kind of the behind the scenes bookkeeping, accounting, making sure all the bills got paid. And then I was kind of freed up to do design work and the production work and fix sewing machines and, and that kind of stuff. So that's kind of how it took off from there. How did you feel about, and maybe your feelings on this change now, but how did, at the time, how did you feel about putting your name on, on something? Um, you know, there, there's a number of companies in the outdoor industry that your name is attached to it. And, um, and there, I don't know. There's, there's something about that that could be. I don't know. You're putting your reputation. I don't know if you feel like you're putting your reputation on the line. You're, you're attaching your name to, to the product. Um, how did you feel about that at the time? Uh, and maybe how have your feelings changed on that since? If they well, have. Uh, again, it was probably something that didn't have a lot of forethought, <laughs> so to speak. I, I designed the logo. I designed the, and you know, when I worked for Outward Bound and other places, they just called them Madden Packs. You know, because literally I, I made all of them. And, uh, I, I don't, you know, I, it's not like I went back and, well, we need to have this and it's got my name on it. It's just, you know, I was, you know, we made great stuff, durable stuff. And, you know, um, so I wasn't afraid to put my name on it. But I, 
wasn't by design, but it wasn't by default either. It's kind of like they're just Madden packs. And uh, so it kind of went from there. So, well, I think in that way, it's like you follow a trajectory, you know, of, of Boulder based companies like Jerry, like Holy Bar, yeah. where it was very much like I'm buying this from a person I know and that right. I trust and their name yeah. is attached to it. And I think you kind of can see that thread through, through what you built. And I don't know if you have as much of that today, right? Cause there's, there's a lot more distance between us and the, and the brands that we buy from. Yeah. So I think it's a little representative of that time too, where it's, yeah, yeah, I, I, know, it's I know, point. I know, Dan, you know, if, if you, if you look back at the brands, I think probably the one that stands out that was a deviation was Osprey. Mm, yeah. Um, maybe, maybe Mike's surname was too long to put on a label. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean, today, Foten, yeah, Fotenhauer might be a little tough for a website. You know, right? but yeah. I'm sure you'd get it, but. Yeah, no, it, it's it's one of those things. But, you know, back then, and I think this is very true, not so much today, but back then, the whole tenant, even at retail was like, I really love the outdoors. I really like making stuff. I'm selling stuff, blah, 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 blah. And so that was kind of like the first priority. Oh, yeah, we all, geez, we have to run a business too. <laughs> and, you know, today, the more, more of the companies, you know, uh, or all the companies are kind of like, well, this is a business. We got to get our margins. We got to get this. We got to do our PR. We got to do this. And, oh, by the way, yeah, we make these products. And, you know, and it's true. Again, Mike can add to this, but a lot of companies, the bigger ones, I mean, they have a lot of great designers, but honestly, I know from working at Gore and selling Gore-Tex, a lot of these people don't even wear the products they design and much less than in being an outdoor school. They went to some design school and and that kind of stuff. And there's a few companies like Arc'teryx and Patagonia and, and, and some others um, that, you know, they actually get out and use the product. Um, but there's a fair number of products out there that I think they were designed for college campuses, put it yeah. that way. Yeah, you're right, Dan. You're right. I mean, <clears throat> with Dan's experience being on the, uh, for the last 30 years, being on the supplier side, he's been able to walk in the doors of so many organizations and see the industry change from that perspective. Um, you know, I've worked at small organizations and startups in the industry, as well as some large corporations. And um, yeah, it's, uh, and, and it, it could also be, as well, as the industry has grown, I mean, if you go back to, I'd say, you know, maybe it was the early 90s, I don't even think we were $5 billion in the US, I think in 1990, the industry was maybe 2 billion total, and we're approaching 30 billion now. So you start to look at the talent, and the education of the talent and all of those kinds of things and the trends that have occurred in the outdoors. I mean, you know, Dan brings up the point before about people at uh you know, spending 26 days, you know, outside, who has the time? Right. That, that trend kind of disappeared right around, I would say, the turn of the century when that trend for what they call done in a day, right? Any activity that could be done in a day started to take place. All of a sudden, 90 liter packs are less interesting, <laughs> right? And there's a rise in hydration packs, uh, fanny packs, or there are just, um, it's the equipment for, I'm going sport climbing, right? Or I'm doing a few hour mountain bike ride or just a day hike. Um, and that then starts to change 
the designer's um, education, if you will, and perspective, right? They're no longer, you know, I remember Dan telling me, Dan, you're, I don't, you'll remember this story because you're the one that told me, but I was asking Dan, I said, how did you realize that the packs needed to be so durable and simple? And it was, he was standing and watching, you watched an, an NCOB student like come out of the woods after 26 days. And I think he was dragging his pack, like just dragging it on the ground. And, you know, when you start to see, when you see things like that as a designer, you say, oh, okay, and I need to solve for this, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, it's a, that so much of a designer is just being a good observer, right? Well, it, it is truly the form follows the function. Yeah. And we were also fortunate at that time that this, quote unquote, revolutionary new fabric called Cordura 1000T came onto the market. And I remember um, the, the packs that Caramore made literally were cotton duck canvas, you know, with shoulder straps. That was the technology. And I remember after Rob and I kind of got together, we started going to trade shows and things and we'd go to ISPO um, selling packs and, and Caramore had strangely enough, a big booth next to us and buy our 10 by 10. And we had our packs, which were all Cordura, and they still were making products out of canvas duct. That was just the way they made them, you know, and they kept coming by our booth and, you know, you know, I said, we just said, why don't you come in and look at it? So I said, well, what is this stuff? <laughs> it's called Cordura. It's, it's, you know, two and a half times stronger and half the weight. Oh, it's nylon. Oh, Really? So the next year we were back at ISPO and it was kind of funny. It's like, guess what material they had? Revolutionary new KS-1000, which was 1000 Denier Cordura. So it just was kind of a, at that time, a, a good time to be around um, because Cordura and, and other, some other products, because other than that, there was pretty much just pack cloth. Yeah, this is, this is pretty significant, you know, because it, if, if you think about it, right, so Madden is the company that introduces Cordura to Europe, mm. right? And everybody at Cordura, I talk to them all the time. So I've known Cindy McNall for many years. I mean, and, and Alan and everybody that they know, Madden was the one that introduced Cordura to Europe. So pretty impactful. The other thing that's very interesting is if you go back and you look at whether they're pack companies, but even more so maybe with apparel companies, in our industry, if you are a first mover with an ingredient material, that starts to become an identity, mm. right? You, I think maybe recently you could look at maybe what Cloudvale was able to achieve with Scholar. That became the Madden identity, was always about Cordura and primarily with 1000D. And that also winds up being the uh, a manifestation of a core value, right? Core value of being durable and simple. Right. Dan said in the beginning, you know, we had to make packs with no zippers, right? At outward bound because zippers break. You know, I, I could say that when I, I joined Madden in, uh, I think it was 91. I mean, we were putting zippers on things, but we were very conscious of field use, right? We were very conscious about what would happen in the field and uh, making sure that it could be field repairable or that we could minimize inconvenience or perhaps anything worse for anybody because our consumers were, you know, outdoor ed 
and real adventurers. And a lot of that was just born out of, you know, Dan's design philosophy, which came from the Outward Bound experience. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's simple. I mean, it's, it's kind of ironic today that with the, all the uh, ultralight fabrics and the ultralight movement, so to speak, nobody would make anything on a 1000D Cordura, you know. That's right. I mean, we, we actually had, we did a lot of, I wouldn't call it custom, but we did a lot of uh, special makeups. I mean, more interesting one is, believe it or not, the Bahamas actually has a military. And we were we were at a trade show, and uh, this guy from the Bahamas came up in his uniform and says, "Can you make a pack like this for us, but make it out of camo?" So I think we wound up selling something like 500 packs out of camo that were just basically modified packs um, for the you know. And then we did there's I mean, FMC, which is a big mining company, whatever probably there in Utah a lot that uh, this guy has all these students and geologists that would go out and make, you know, just bring rock samples back, but they couldn't find anything that would carry them, you know, durably enough. So we actually made packs that were double Cordura uh, and triple bottoms so that the rock samples would come back, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the pack would last through the summer. So, you know, you just kind of do what you have to do when you need to do it. And we, and we found that in a, in a number of things, Chase, you know, over the years. Um, and I think, I think you could probably look at that with, with many brands and products in, in the industry about where they were born and, and the terrain that influenced their design, right? You know, Dan is talking about... Uh, in North Carolina at the Outward Bound School, what it was like to uh, bushwhack, right? And, and, you know, it's really densely forested. Well, as the other Outward Bound schools start, you know, asking for products, based on their terrain, they have different requests. So you look at Pacific Crest, which is running programs down in Joshua Tree, right? And Dan's talking about how sharp rocks are. The next thing you know, we're modifying packs that have ballistic bottoms or double layers of cordura in different places. Um, you know, I, I think you could probably look at, at, at many brands, especially European brands that maybe were born in the Alps, right? Uh, maybe some uh, Japanese brands that are focused on lightweight or they have different climate. Um, you know, it's, um, I think that's something that we don't, we don't recognize enough necessarily with brands and their heritage about the in, the impact that the terrain had on the design and, and perhaps even maybe some of the values that stay with the brand over time. Yeah. Oh, I, th- I think uh, I just had this conversation with Jeff Knight um, from, from Granite Gear. And mm. uh, I mean, I think they're like a perfect example of that. It's like a, a pack that needs to hold up in a wetter environment, right? Than Absolutely. Designing portage packs. And I didn't know what a portage pack was until we had that conversation. So I think that that's a, a great example of that. I'm glad that you brought that point up. Um, I guess what are some of the other differentiators that you feel like Madden had or stood out based on on the location? Um, with that said, anything that we haven't already covered? Yeah, well, I think I think there are some small design elements, and I, I, I 
I took some packs out of the archive, so I've got them up behind now. It's, it's not great radio, but but it's better for the video. And I'll, I'll do my best to describe a couple of things because, I mean, I, I think there are, some of them are important. I'll, let me see. I think the, the first one I'm, I'm going to show, this is actually this pack here. This is the uh, original rucksack, right? So Dan designed this. And, hey, Dan, this is the one that's based on the pack that Margo sent me. Right. right? Margo was a friend of Dan's from NCOPS. She'd had a pack that Dan had personally made her. It must have been 40-something years old or older. And uh, But there were some design elements on here that were the significantly canted bottom, right? You can see this. It helps pull the weight in close to the back. It stabilizes the load as it moves away from the back without having to use a lot of straps. Very important and a design feature that wound up, uh, you know, for... Most um, performance packs that you typically find that now. There's another one here, and this one I I, I was impressed with Dan is it because we've just started to see this kind of cut on the opening of the pack happen on some modern Alpine packs. But now you, I know the, the the listeners at home can't see this, but rather than having a this is a top loading pack. And rather than having a, a, a skirt that you cinch, it has a, an angled cut of fabric. It's taller in the front than it is in the back. So that when you cinch it, it actually seals closed. We have just started to see this design reemerge in, I think there are some, there were a couple of Alpine packs, maybe at Patagonia that did something like this, where they were even able to eliminate the top lid itself. Dan, I mean, this is such a simple design. It's pretty well, elegant. Do you even remember, you know, how you came to that? No, not not really. It just kind of like again, form or function. You know, I mean, the form follows the the function, and you're just trying to keep everything pushed in, so to speak, and the load, you know, more centered instead of saggy. Because if you look at people, especially teenagers carrying day packs, I mean. The bottom of the pack is down around their hips and there's straps and and then you know, I don't know what kind of injuries they'll have when they're adults, but just they're just kind of like walking like this and they can't figure out why their pack doesn't fit right. So to me it's just intuitive. But it's, yeah, to that, there's a, there's another one that I want to share. And this this is a top loading pack. This particular style is called Penguin. Um, but the top loader design, um and, and, you know, Chase, this goes back to, you know, all the stuff that Dan's been talking about, about how things can't break in the field, right? And that you have to really maximize the longevity of the product. Well, if you see here, and again, for the listeners at home, on a top loading pack, typically to create the seal in modern packs, there's some elastic around the sides. And that's what helps the top lid, you know, or people call it today the brain, right, on a top loader pack kind of seal around that, 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 open, that opening at the top. Well, <clears throat> the problem with elastic is it has, a, it has a limited memory. It's going to, you know, stop, you know, elasticizing <laughs> at some point. It's not going to come back into shape or it's going to break. And <clears throat> Dan created these tunnels and the tunnels that the straps run through wind up cinching now the top load to create the seal around the pack. This was 
on one of the, I remember one of the very first NCOPS packs I saw, it was made out of orange Cordura and it must've been from around 74, 75. And it had something similar. I think it had used a round cord to go right. through the tunnel, but there was no elastic. It created a great seal. I'm not sure if there are any brands that are using this now, perhaps Bach, which is um, out of Switzerland, um, which had always been kind of close friends with Madden over the years. Um, they might be doing something like that, but I still will see, um, especially European retailers that have been in the business for a long time at Transa, Baver, uh, they still believe this is one of the best top lid designs for, uh, for really just protecting your contents and, and for over, overall functional simplicity, if you will. Can, I just love how like nitty gritty you're getting into pack design and features. And it just, it shows me that like this space there's, I think there's still, there's still gotta be opportunity, right. To, to, to push things forward and always, and, and, and things aren't sticking. Right. It seems like, like some of these features, you say some other companies are starting to pick them up, but um, I, I don't know. It seems like there's a lot of opportunity in this space because it's such a, challenging product to design. I imagine I, you know, I, I'm not a designer. I don't create packs, but Dan, in your experience, like if you were to rank products to create or, or design, like I, I have to imagine a pack is one of the more challenging products because of how it affects the body. Maybe people don't think of that, right? It's like, Oh, I just wear this thing. But if you're really thinking about the long-term effects, like this is a product that takes a lot of time and effort and thought and, it, you know, there's so many factors that go into making a good, good pack that I, I don't know if is fully appreciated. I, what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's several. One, the, the pack, obviously, is it's kind of like your, I don't know, it's, it's kind of embodies everything that you're carrying, obviously. And uh, your tent is kind of your house and your, you know, your sleeping bag and pad is probably, you know, your bed. But Somehow you got to transport it. And uh, the problem with most design elements is that, you know, at least in my opinion, it has to be what we call fit for use. That, you know, you, you don't, uh, you know, and carry a 60 liter pack when you're hut hopping. I remember one of my Howard Bound friends took one of our big, big packs, like 60 leaders and he was going to hike through Europe, which he did. And, but he met all these people in the trail that had literally little knapsacks, like the one that, you know, he just showed you. And, and it was like, all the people go, why are you carrying some, you know, it's kind of, you're crazy. And it's like, no, this is my house. This is my trailer, so to speak. And I have everything I need. So, but we go hut to hut. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> So I think it depends on the personal need, like Albert Bound had a very specific need that the retail, nobody in their right mind would probably buy it, but it filled a niche. And I think there's a lot of great designers. I mean, Osprey and Gregory and you name it. And I mean, you know, the plethora of cottage industries and the ultralight business are just kind of like, it's almost like there's a new one every day. The only problems, they all kind of look alike uh, and they function alike, but you know, if you can get away with 20 pounds instead of 40 to 60 pounds, um, that's the way you should go. But but as far as designing the packets, 
it's being a adjustable to to fit a wide range of people, uh, whether it's the length of the waist belt, whether it's uh, the torso adjustment, whether it's the size of the or even the width of the uh, shoulder strap. So I don't think there's, you know, one perfect hack, but I go back to the fit for use. So you need to figure out what you're doing. If you're through hiking, you want something different versus, you know, done in the day versus rock climbing versus ski packs versus those kind of things. It's just, you know, and what I'm designing now is more in the ultralight category, trying to keep a pack under two pounds and, and nothing against Osprey, but, and Mike does an incredible job, uh, but I just saw where they introduced a, what, a $700 pack? That oh, yeah, the one that's... Um, that weighs something like seven pounds before you put anything in it. And that's great if that's what you want. Um, it, was, it was using a technology. It was using a 3 d fiber something. And that's great. I mean, you got advanced materials. And like I say, nothing against them. They do an incredible, great job. And, uh, you know, I mean, to be completely honest they've three kids that are out of college now and they like to go backpacking and i got a osprey packs you know <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, hey dan you know you raise a really good point about like there's the there's the design there's the fit right there's the functionality and then there's the ingredients right yeah. it's like baking the cake it's kind of like the significance of cordura and the materials and i know it's a lot of what you know you worked in in the second part of your career with with gore and chase i'll share this with you i found this in the archives this is something that again for the people at home i'll i'll, I'll try and talk to it but this <clears throat> was a board that showed the different foams that were used in the different packs and <clears throat> these things were like it was almost like a taste test. So you would have to go and you'd say, you know, I think for this pack, we're going to need a dual density foam. So for the dual density, you know, what are we going to have? Well, I'm, I'm going to use a, on the shoulder harness on, on the penguin pack, which was one of the ones that I showed earlier. We're going to have a three eighths inch I cell two pound. We're going to put that on the bottom and over the top, we're going to do a two pound T cell. And, you know, foam is you kind of get into the black arts when you're dealing with that stuff. But we would wind up documenting all of this as well. And a board like this, this would be at all the stations, right, for anyone who is doing assembly so that they could always see, oh, this is what should go inside. These are the ingredients. Um, we would share it with customer service. So customer service, if someone called up and, you know, as you pointed out before, wanted to nerd out on gear, we'd be able to tell them what was inside. No secrets, total transparency. Um, I think this is something and, and I will I will say I think this is being lost a little bit in our business. We as an industry, you know, separate from the cottage industry, the cottage guys that Dan was talking about doing the UL stuff, which I have great admiration for. They are the next people that are advancing things. But a lot of factories are picking the ingredients. You know, a developer might pick a, a body material. They might pick it in a couple places, but they won't always go down to the nitty gritty and spec the foam. And foam's important, especially with real load bearing products for the category we're talking about today. Right. Um, we're, we don't 
see our pack designers or developers necessarily specking all the ingredients the way somebody uh, might on a shoe, right? But footwear gets pretty specific. Um, but I think that's, uh, that's another element to the design that when you're really getting very conscientious, you're, gonna, you're baking a cake. You're going to look at every ingredient that goes in there. I'm, I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that, like separation that's happened. Um, I, I think that, I mean, this company um, up until 2000, there's an acquisition. I want to talk about the acquisition, but prior to that, huge shifts are happening in the industry. Um, product, you know, manufacturing going overseas, um, that distance between designers and, you know, selecting those materials, I think starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but what were those shifts like for the company? Um, it's the, the, the Bill Simon effect, right. Of, of <laughs> sure. you know, large acquisitions happening and then things moving overseas. Yeah, that's right. Those were the, those were the two major shifts they were happening in the nineties. You know, some, some stuff happened as, as early as the eighties, I think, you know, TNF, started manufacturing some product offshore, but they did it under a sub-label, the Windy yeah, well, Pass. The Windy Pass, that's right. The Windy yeah. Pass. My first sleeping bag is synthetic sleeping bag by the Windy Pass. Um, <laughs> purchased at Campmore in Paramus. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, but by the time we're getting to the mid-90s or so, yeah, we're starting to see brands maybe like a Low Alpine, Right. Everyone knows that brand, great brand, but they're starting to have some pretty aggressive pricing and some great values. Then you've got brands maybe like a Dana Design that are still being made in the U.S., just like Madden. Um, But all of our price points are going up. We're hitting three hundred dollars or more, you know, now for these fifty five hundred cubic inch packs. And that's when things start to shake out a little bit now. It was, we were, you know, look, most companies, most brands, like you have a product or you have a service or maybe the service is the product or maybe the product is amplified by great service. I I think with Madden, we were probably the latter. You know, we had some, we weren't not a big company. You know, we were, we were probably at that time, uh, $2 million or less. And you had Dana design at maybe eight to $10 million right in the mid 90s and they were the market leaders but you know over in europe we sold more packs than any us brand more than dana more than osprey more than gregory we had an aesthetic that was appreciated over there it was uh, again there was a simplicity to our product which i think probably corresponded to some extent with the simplicity you would find from the alpine oriented world, you know, the brands that were coming from an Alpine place, you know, the Mies and things like that, um, but with an American durability, right? And, and that's where, so we were very popular at, at retailers like Transa or Baber Zorf Sport, um, Globetrotter, all the European uh, retailers, uh, the REIs of their respective countries. Our relationships with them were strong enough. I mean, this is kind of interesting. They would use Madden as the consolidator for all of the U.S. made products that they wanted to import. So at our little factory here in Boulder, we would receive shipments from Thermarest, from Dana, right? MSR. It would all come to us and we would consolidate and then send over to Europe. And then it would be broken out to those retailers. Mm. 
it kind of goes back to that sense of community, right? That we, you know, that's the way we were all kind of brought up. And um, I think, I think it exists in some levels still, but maybe not quite to that extent, you know, where business has gotten more sophisticated, but, you know, so we were still making the business, you know, making products here in the U S the innovation that we had, you know, we expanded into bike penniers and bike touring, very popular in the eighties. Right. And it carried through to the early nineties. Um, and so we made a very durable product there. And then we did an extension and we made a child carrier. And that was kind of a big deal because if you think about our core customers, which had been experiential education and had been this real true adventurer, right? These kind of hardcore, spend a lot of time outdoors, going on long treks or long bike tours. Now we were getting into family hiking. I don't even know if it was family camping at that point. It was really when you start looking at child carriers in the early to mid 90s, it's kind of family hiking. And we said, okay, how do we do this? How do we do this on, on a, in a Madden way, right? So <clears throat> this was probably the first time that we had to do consumer research that was for a different kind of consumer. And that's when I was at the company, right? So this was, this was my second tour of duty. I've done three tours of duty with Madden, and I'm proud to say that. So I was there, I was there in 91 for about a year. I left to become a, uh, a work for a sales agency selling uh, Thule and MSR and outdoor gear. And I missed being at the factory. I missed the sewing machines. I missed being close to the product. And I had the opportunity to come back. And Rob said, come on back. And I stayed for a couple more years and got involved in, in leading the development of this child carrier. It was really Rob's idea. I said, Mike, I want to make a baby carrier. I said, Rob, there's not one person in this building who has a child. Well, we were not really coming from a place of authenticity. He said, I've got friends that have kids, and if we need kids to test, we'll borrow them. So, so he said, okay, well, let's, let's think about how we're going to do this. And we looked at what was happening in the market. You know, Tough Traveler made a product. Kelty was starting to make some child carrier products. And again, they were all pretty lightweight. They were for day hiking. We said, you know what? If our customer is the adventurer, Let's make one for them. Let's make a product where a family could go overnight. If one person could carry the large pack, five, 6,000 cubic inch pack, and someone else could carry the baby and baby supplies, I think we've got something. So we built a child carrier that had storage. None of the other ones had storage before. It probably had about 2,000 cubic inches of storage. And there were a couple of other innovations in there. There was a sunshade that was uh, easy to fold down and could store in the child carrier. And we also created these little stirrups, the little booties for kids to put their feet in. And even little things like uh, we put some molly loops in the, uh, what we used to call it the, uh, I mean, it was basically the compartment, you know, where the, where the child is sitting to put some toys or maybe a towel or something like that. And uh, even the harness, the harness was based on uh, race car seatbelts. So we went deep on this thing, right. To, to make this really special product. 
it became, you could look at any modern child carrier today and there are elements that are all based on that design. Mm. And that's from, I think the product was released in 95. So it's been a, a real, just a lot of longevity, right? In, in terms of um, very useful design elements. And, you know, the other stuff that was happening at, at that time in the industry, right? So we're talking about how we're shifting. Now we're starting to shift towards the done-in-a-day activities. Well, and as you were pointing out, Chase, we're also starting to mature as an industry. And the businesses are maturing. There's this thing called the technology boom happening. And Silicon Valley has occurred, which brings private equity which starts to bring this approach, this lens to the outdoor industry to say, oh, maybe, maybe there's money here. And we started to see brands, maybe like a Dana be acquired by K2. We started to see, you know, Mountain Smith acquired by private equity. And this consolidation is happening. Timbuktu acquired by private equity consolidation happening. And, that's what ultimately happened with Madden. You know, it was right around that time. Um, it was the late 90s, acquired by a guy named Ed Rutzik. And we know Ed today for having started the brand Sherpani, a women's active lifestyle bag brand. Um, Ed had acquired Madden, realized it wasn't for him, sold to LaFuma. LaFuma was interested. They were obviously were familiar with the Madden brand from Europe. But they wanted to get a foothold in the U.S. You know, LaFuma as a holding company, they have Chameau, they have VA, they had a number of brands. So to have a U.S. brand made a lot of sense. I think what, uh, look, while everyone was on the front end of saying, hey, from a business strategy, consolidation makes sense. We weren't yet on the middle to back end of saying, once we consolidate, now what? No one had done it yet, right? So there weren't success stories yet. And so that's where we found a lot of brands start to uh, maybe fall away because of now businesses saying, oh, this is a lot bigger than I expected. The businesses aren't all running independently, or if they do run independently, they cost too much money. I'm not recognizing the benefits of this consolidation. I've got to contract, so they harvest what they can, and typically that's product, roll it into the strong brand, and then uh, the brand that they acquired goes dormant, sunsets. LaFuma did that. They took the child carrier. Mm. That's why I told the child carrier story, because I think that's an important component here. And they brought that in, and LaFuma made the child carrier for a number of years. It was a great product. Um, but the Madden brand then went dormant. Uh, not too different than some other examples that we've seen in our industry, right? Their acquisition, and then they go dormant. Um, and LaFuma, you know, they've, they're just a great brand. I just, I just admire them very much. And I'll, I'll, I'll share why in a sec, because it, it, <clears throat> I think they've done a great job with the brands they have. I think that they, they treasure the, the true identities right? The core identities of the brands. And 
if they're not able to make the most of them and amplify them, they don't do anything goofy. They just say, okay, now it's not the time. <laughs> needs to go to sleep. <laughs> and that's ultimately what happened with Madden. And then that's why I became interested in it years later and thought, hey, I, I think there's an opportunity here. That's great. I'm going to go back a little bit and then I'll catch up. Yeah. Um, to where we're at. I, but I wanted to touch on a couple of things because I, I think you made some really awesome points around like the, you just found the right products at the right time that really differentiated yourselves. You, you, your product resonated in, you know, in certain parts of the country or in the, the globe that I think really, really helped as well. But, but I, then I look at a company like Heinz Snowbridge mm. also in Boulder got into bike packing you know, faced a lot of these same or similar challenges and then just faded, faded away. Right. Couldn't keep up with a lot of the global, global changes. I, I wanted to point them out because we interviewed the Hind brothers recently as well. Oh, that's cool. And, and talk I've, to only them about that. Greg, I've only met Greg once. So I, I don't know the full story, but I know Greg became very important in our industry from a sourcing perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, he helped a lot of small companies go get their products made, you know, after Heinz Snowbridge. Right. Brands like Kirtland or Eclipse, also in the bike packing space. Yep. Um, Kirtland, I think, wound up in the hands of GT Rightway, I, I think, mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, but, uh, yeah, and now, okay, yeah, we look at bike packs today, and boy, they're not panniers, are they? They're mm-hmm. different. Right. Yeah. Dan, where were you during all of this time too? Like, I guess your thoughts during this transition leading up to that acquisition. Well, there were, there were several things going on. Uh, I, you know, like I said, started probably in roughly 72, corporate 74, 75, kind of merged with uh, Alpine Map Company in the, around 80 or so. And then essentially I had a wife and two kids <laughs> And uh, it was kind of, you know, a hard decision, but at the same time, it was kind of like maybe it's time to move on and, and not from designing packs or whatever or, or Rob or anybody. It just, you know, there's, there wasn't room enough money uh, to make a decent, you know, living, to be honest. So I had some friends that worked for Gore and, uh you know, so I just said, that I think it's time to move on and do something different and to be very honest, to have a paycheck that I know I can cash because when, you know, or, or even, gee, believe it or not, direct deposit. Um, so it was kind of one of those decisions that uh, for me professionally, it was time to do something else. And, and Gore is a great company with a great product and they kind of, you know, it was kind of funny when they hired me and says, well, what do you want to, what's your goals and all this stuff? I said, well, my main goal is to stay in Boulder. And you know, they kind of said, okay, we're good with that. Um, so that was, that was the main reason, but that was about 86, 87. I started with Gore in 88 and, uh, you know, Went through a lot of transitions, so to speak, but my my industry knowledge uh, was very helpful because, and you got to remember that Gore as a company is a, is a chemical company making PTFE and those kind of things and laminates that you know they they don't make the fabric or whatever they just laminate it to a fabric and so as Mike pointed out, seeing the other side of the business was quite enlightening. I mean, I had customers like. 
Cabela's, uh, Patagonia, Mountain Hardware when they first started out, Cloudvale when they first started out, and, and things like that, Sims Fishing, uh, those kind of things. So it was just a new experience, and you know, it was something else. And but I've always still to this day have that uh, love or desire just to design things and and they make things. But you know, from from that point, I think it was kind of it was Rob and Mike, and then. Mike came along and they did great things. And I was always happy to see the the brand keep keep growing and, and doing different things because you kind of reach a point, honestly, where it's like not out of ideas, but I'm kind of tired of doing this, you know, uh, making patterns. And because I did all the pattern making, all the design work and all that stuff. So that, that was kind of the impetus to, to move on to Gore. And if I hadn't found a job with Thor or a company like that, I probably would have just stayed on, you know, until something happened. But it was too good of an opportunity to work for a, a company that's, even though they're privately held, they would probably be, or they would be in the top 100 companies in, in the U.S. So, uh, and, it, and it was a great, great place to work with great people. And, you know, most of my time was, telling other people who wanted to use Gore-Tex that they couldn't use Gore-Tex. <laughs> <laughs> just, just because from a, a very simple uh, business decision, it's like pie is only so big out there. And what are you going to do to make the pie bigger, not necessarily make the pieces smaller? And so that's a business decision that uh, I kind of learned. You don't necessarily grow your business by adding a lot of different customers because you're working harder for the same amount of money, basically, because mm -hmm. the pie is only so big. And it's the same thing in the pack business. You know, it's, there's a lot of people out there and, you know, we kind of started when Gregory started, um, kind of when Osprey started and, you know, we had a different tact um, and they had more, more consumer oriented products and, and everybody kind of coexisted. I mean, low, Kind of went different directions. They were actually bought by a company in Ireland, Patty Loomis and all those guys. And that's where they were manufacturing. And we kind of stayed in Boulder. And whether that was the right decision or not, you know, it, it is what it is. That, that's kind of where I came from. Well, I've, I've got a couple couple thoughts here before maybe we talk about the revival. Um, so the kitty carrier, or, well, the kitty carrier is Jerry's product, right? But um, I, I think it's interesting that you kind of carried that that through. Boulder-based company that makes a, a, a product to carry kids in, in the outdoors. I mean, That's a good Jerry, point. I, I don't know if- I'm not I, sure I had ever really connected those dots. I don't know um, why in Boulder that's that was the thought process, but yeah, Jerry and Ann were kind of the first to do that original yeah, kitty sure. carrier, and then and then to have you carry that forward in Boulder, I think, is an interesting through line. Um, I guess a, a question for both of you: If you what are what are some favorite dormant brands that you'd love to see come back? I mean, I. One of mine, purely based on some of the catalog covers, is Snow Lion. I would love to see a, a Snow Lion <laughs> revival just for that catalog cover of you know the Snow Lion peaks. Um, but are there others that you know of that are dormant that that you have an attachment to or would love to see return? Oh, Dan, I'll let I'll let you take this one. I you know there's there was a lot of great brands in Boulder, and and I think one of my favorite brands was uh, Alubar. 
because they just uh, everything was made in their factory there. Uh, you know, and it was all top quality, handmade. You know, people that cared about it. One of the the funny stories, from what I understood, was Roy Olivar was actually a professor at CU, and it was actually. I mean, it, it, he and his wife kind of ran it, but I think she is the one that actually ran the company and did all the the outdoor designs and, and things like that. But their sleeping bags, their jackets, their you know, all their products were just just top top notch, you know. And um, it was just kind of a local company that. Uh, you know, did well. The, the other thing that was in Boulder at that time that was kind of interesting, this is a side note, is, is Frostline kits. Mm-hmm. You know, and and then there was Ultra kits um, and things. It was kind of a me too. And they did a great job and great people. Um, but I, I remember when Gillette came in and bought Frostline kits and paid a lot of money at the time. And we're kind of going like, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> you know, it was that period that Mike was talking about where the consolidation is like Gillette, which obviously makes razors and shaving products, buying an outdoor company. And it's kind of like, okay, let's see where this goes. So that, I, if I were going to pick one, I would pick all you are, I think. I mean, there, there's others, you know. No, that, those are great references, Dan. You know, with Hollybar, I, I agree. I mean, they're the, the brand, if I'm, I'm if I'm correct, is owned by BF, and it's. I think it only operates out of Italy at this time. <laughs> I, I, I have seen some of the product. I, I saw the product in. Uh, I think it was in Germany, maybe uh, a couple of years ago in a store, but. Um, it's not the Hollywood bar, certainly, that we remember in those kinds of categories. And Frostline, you know, I've had discussions with some people in the industry about, you know, there was this nascent, this kind of small micro trend that was very DIY, right? And we said, wow, what would it look like today? You know, what, what could people really do today? Will they have their own sewing machines? Or is it DIY, but based on whatever the skill set or the equipment they might have today, how would that perhaps have evolved? But I agree there's, and who knows, maybe, maybe now in the, in the, in the climate that we're in, it, it becomes more appealing, you know, as yeah. people, people are looking for, uh, for ways to be outdoors active and uh, there are some price constraints. Yeah. Well, I just sent you a link in the chat to the new Holy bar. Um, that is owned by this Italian company. They, I think they purchased the trademark from oh, did they? Oh, the, okay. the North face and relaunched. So um, it's, they're definitely going for more of that uh, high end luxury outdoor look yes. and feel and price point. So, yes. uh, but interesting to see that there's an interest in, in that type of a, a, a brand. Um, and yeah, you know, I saw, I saw something last night. I, I uh, there's a, a, a magazine from Japan called go out. And I get it periodically, so I get to kind of stay on, stay in touch with what's happening globally. And I'm going through, and the first thing that was great was I got to see uh, some new Madden product in that magazine. That was very cool. But the other thing was there was a brand called Overland Equipment. Overland Equipment had been at Chico. Uh, I had been involved in it at one point. It had gone dormant, and it had been dormant for some time. 
And all of a sudden, I just saw a collection of maybe three products being advertised in this catalog being sold by Beams. Uh, for those that don't know Beams, it's a uh, kind of combination lifestyle, fashion, outdoor type retail. And uh, so I, I think, Chase, I, th I, I think there's an interest in these things. And, and I, you know what? I think it's like what we were talking about before. Brands are trust, right? And, and people, people want to be involved with, they want connections and they want connections that they can trust. And I think typically, at least what I found more often than not, and maybe what we were talking about before with the trends in consolidation, it was the operators that wound up sunsetting the brand. The brand hadn't broken trust necessarily. It hadn't broken trust with its retail partners. It hadn't broken trust with its consumers, most importantly. And so anytime there's a kind of a clean sunset, uh, and the values haven't been compromised. I think there's always a chance for it to, you know, come back and be of importance, right? It has to be of importance though, ultimately. Yeah. Well, and I, I the, in the business that we're in and archiving, you know, as I'm talking to companies and sharing with them why they should be caring about their own history, which you, you, should, you don't think I should have to be telling people that, um, <laughs> but I, I, there's so much value in, in having that history, right? Like to be a 30 year old company, a 40 year old company, we're coming up on so many of these brands being 50 years old. I mean, there's inherently something about that, that people look at and say, wow, that's a company that's been around. I can that's trust right. that, um, whether they've had a prior connection to it or not. And so mm -hmm. to see a company like Holy Bar that I think started in the late forties, um, you know, or fifties, um, even though it's being revived, it was dormant for a while. I think people will look at that and say, wow, okay. That's a company that has some legs. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't put a price on being around for a few decades, Right there, you can't put a price on that, that kind of value, I think. Um, and, and when you look at a lot of these companies, and you know, I mean, Jerry started in Boulder, there used to be a Jerry store on right past and Pearl, and and then you've got uh, Hoya Bar, and then you've got you know, Lowe and the Lowe family, Greg Lowe and Jeff Lowe, and all of those. And then you've got you know, I mean, when, when you mentioned Chico, Mike, I mean, there was Caribou, yeah. I mean, and Marsha, and, and that yeah. game. Marsha Briggs. Well, and, and Jerry's a company that has kind of strayed from that heritage feel, yeah, right? Quite a and, bit. <laughs> right. So, it, yeah. which is interesting. And so it seems like there's an opportunity for even brands that are still functioning to rediscover themselves, right? Yeah. But I'll, I'll show for anybody watching. This is the book I keep on my little sewing machine here down in the office. It's Lightweight Camping Equipment and How to Make It by Jerry Cunningham. There we go. All right. There you go. <laughs> and, and he was, he was kind of the predecessor for quote unquote, lightweight gear, making sleeping bags out of old parachute, you know, yeah. and, and those kind of things. And, you know, he actually, his backpack was actually pretty neat. It was all zipper compartmentalized, but, uh, you know, it's just very innovative for somebody that just didn't have a lot to work with back then. He was probably the first. Yeah. Not, not to go on too many tangents or talk about yeah. our archive too much, but um, I think, I think Mike, I might've mentioned this to you when, when you were here and maybe you got to look at the materials. I don't remember, but um, Jerry and Ann's son, um, we've been in touch with him and he's actually been donating materials from 
from his dad to the archives. And so we actually have memos from his dad out to employees during the seventies. I don't know. We've got maybe a hundred different memos that he sent out to employees. And so you can actually go through and read the memos that Jerry wrote to the employees at the time and, and get a feel for what was happening at the company. Um, what, what was going on behind the scenes? You know, you get, you have, you have the catalog, which is great and you can see the end product, but we're really interested in starting to collect more of the behind the scenes materials and learning well, what into what went into making that product that ended it's up in important. the catalog. And look, when, it, when I <clears throat> looked at reviving, you know, Madden packs and I called up Dan, Dan said, well, come on over. I've got a couple of things. And yeah, there were a couple of uh, old packs, mostly kind of prototypes that he had sewn and made himself and, you know, uh, and that he had used over the years, but there were some, I think there was an, the HR guidelines or something like that, that Dan had shared with me, you know, kind of company handbook stuff. Uh, it was great to see, you know, cause it was even before my time. So it was, uh, you know, that, that helps, you know, I think to your point, establish some kind of continuity for the, the brand over, over the long period of time. So what, what went in, you mentioned the revival. Um, how did that come about? How did you two reconnect about, this opportunity to bring, bring the, the brand back. It went dormant um, yeah. it in 2003-ish or, or so, but how yeah. did that come together? I, I was doing some consulting um, and, you know, you have a series of clients and, and, and some of them were just dynamite. One in particular was BioLite. Um, mm-hmm. Some people might know BioLite. They, they created a, a very unique camping stove that runs on biomass and generates electricity and it uh so that you could charge a phone or a headlamp and they also make a larger stove that they uh market in third world countries for when people are living off the grid and so there were some things that were incredibly rewarding there and i said god i just need more of this and i was you know in my 40s and you know everybody tells you you're gonna have a midlife crisis so you know what's the best way to do to avoid that is you know get a hobby so I, uh, this is a very true story. So my wife and I were talking about this. I said, I got everybody tells me I'm supposed to have this midlife crisis. I got to avoid this thing. She said, well, get a hobby. You've always liked making packs. Why don't you do that? That is the, that is the story. And that's the way it started. So I said, you know, whatever happened to that, our little Madden brand, and I knew that it had gone to Lafuma, but I hadn't really kept up with it. So I did a little bit of research and I knew some people at Lafuma. So I, once I, I knew where the mark had ended up and, and how the business had sunsetted, I called my friend Guillaume and, and I said, hey, I'm really interested in, in this. Do you think the people in, at Lafuma would be interested in, you know, giving it back? Because that's really just just give it back, guys. You know, you're not doing anything with it. So uh, and that was again, this was another example of the sense of community. Right. Because there are there are marks in our business that are owned by large corporations that they will not release. Because they don't want the competition, but in this sense of community here, and that's, again, why I have such respect for the team at Lafuma. They said, yeah, we understand the importance to you and they understand the importance to your community because maybe that's not necessarily our community. Right. Um, and so we worked out a deal. And from there, I said, okay, now what? Well, let's see if we can get the band back together. 
So, you know, I kind of start that way. And I, I, I call Dan and, and Dan is, is very generous, very gracious. And he, he shares a lot of things with me. And it was, it was just dynamite. I called up a woman named Tina. Tina used to be our production manager at the Madden factory. When the business was shuttered, she went and started her own cut and sew operation. So she could do the initial production. Um, I called, this is great. I called a guy named Dale. And now people in the outdoor industry won't know Dale from that business, but they will know Dale Katechis from Dale's Pale Ale. Mm. So Dale had been our GM at a, a small period of time, and he and I had crossed over and worked together. And Dale had since gone on to you know, become uh, a leader in, in this, um, you know, in the brewing space. And I said, Dale, what do you think about this? He's a smart business guy. And it was great. He invited me out to the, um, to the brewery one day. And I've got this can here. And again, I'm sorry for the people, uh, you know, that don't have the computer and are just listening. But on the bottom of the can, <laughs> and Dale's Pale Ale, they put a little message every day. And on the bottom of this can from August 8th, 2012 at 2.18 uh, p.m., it says, Madden lives. And <laughs> really? that, was, that was confirmation. Right. So, so then what happens is you say, okay, now, now we've got to go find where the fans are today. And, you know, we're going to, you know, at that time, you know, in the either side of the 2010s, heritage brands were important. People were really connecting to it. And but while historically we had a lot of uh, fans in Europe, the European market, and to their credit, is very progressive. They are always advancing with technology. They are always advancing. And our style wasn't quite there yet. I think ultimately we could get there because we had brand trust. But we went to Japan. And we found great fans in Japan. And our first orders were great. They were with people like Beams or with um, uh, a catalog company called Bogard, which is um, uh, at the time maybe had been owned by the Sony Corporation or at one time they were. Um, <clears throat> heavy duty shops. There were, we just had a, a lot of fans there and it was a great way for us to kind of start the business again. And so we ran it for a couple of years and we were getting to that point where we had to make the decision. Can I be the best steward going forward? That was really the honest moment, right? Like I'm, you know, if we look at somebody like Dan and people from Dan's generation in, in the outdoor industry, they were the innovators, I come along and people my age, we're the, we're the kind of the second generation. We're maybe the nurturers, right? But then as the industry matures, as businesses mature, you need somebody a, a little different. And I start to realize in my 30 years in the industry, uh, I have a limit, right, to what I, I do. And there was a comment that, that Dan had made to me when I went to meet him the first time. And he was handing over some of these wonderful Archives. I mean, there was the first catalog that was in his own pen and ink, right? It was the draft before it went to print. 
And he said to me, he said, well, you're the steward now. And I, I intrinsically, you know, just took that responsibility on, but realized that I, I probably wouldn't have the skills to be able to do it forever. So I started to realize that I was either going to have to bring people on board or somehow I was going to find, have to find the right steward. And so I spent some time, a lot of time in thought, a lot of, a lot of hikes on this one. There are a lot of, you know, single person hikes on this one. And uh, again, realizing where the fans were and realizing who would appreciate the legacy, the archives. I mean, Chase, you talk about archives. In this period from 2012 to 2019, I had assembled an archive that, it wasn't every catalog. It was close. You had actually at Utah State had a couple that I didn't have that I wasn't able to find. But I had an example or a pattern of almost every pack we had produced in 40 years. So we had, and I mean, I had actually original patterns for many of them as well. I mean, we had this thing all the way through. So we were able to provide someone, if you will, a brand in a box. It wasn't just a trademark. It wasn't just a logo, as beautiful as that logo is and timeless. Um, we could provide that legacy. We could provide those company handbooks, you know, from the late 70s, early 80s. We could provide that stuff. And so over the years in the industry, I had a chance to, you know, meet a lot of great people. I called some people up, asked them what they thought. There were some that had interest, some that it wasn't quite the right fit for. And ultimately, I found a great steward, and it's the Itochu Corporation in Japan. And we don't have companies quite like that in the U.S. these days. You know, that's a, a real kind of, con it's a real conglomerate. Itochu, Mitsui, there are a couple, but we don't, we don't have them quite as much anymore. But when I say conglomerate, for the people that don't know, I, I really talk about diversification, where um, they will have a construction arm right? Heavy duty machinery. They'll have a fabric arm. And Dan knows Itochu from, you know, when he worked at Gore and, and partnering them with them on materials development. And I know them from a distribution standpoint. Uh, Itochu owns the trademark to Converse footwear mm -hmm. in Japan. Um, every year they get a phone call from Nike asking if they want to sell it back. And every year they say, no, I think it's like an anniversary they have every year. Um, but you know, that, that, that's an example that happened at one point. I mean, you look at Goldwyn and the TNF, you know, trademarks. I mean, there was a time where the world was much bigger and we thought, Oh, you know, we'll sell the trademark or we'll license the trademark. Now the world is very small. So uh, I spent about a year were speaking with Itochu, first in their U.S. office, then with the Japan office and getting to know them. They got to know me um, and decided that they were going to be great stewards for the Madden brand. And they moved very swiftly in accelerating what the next phase would look like. And then, unfortunately, uh, stifled by the pandemic. Mm. So things slowed down for the last two years, but they've just relaunched the Madden brand, uh, specifically in Japan. 
with some classic styles, some of the older styles, as well as some new styles, which is, is really exciting, as well as some apparel. A lot of people don't remember, but we made apparel at one point. Dan, it must have been like late 70s or so. Yeah, and just a side note is it's that's actually my kind of my connection to Gore. Mm. We were one of the <laughs> first three companies to make um, Cortex products. This was generation one before seam sealing, um, those kind of things. But as Mike pointed out, you kind of come to a crossroads. Are we a pack company or are we an all company? And so we decided that even though it was a great product, you got to remember Gore-Tex came around in 76. First product was a tent from Bill Nikolai, Omnipotent. And it wasn't until the early 80s that one, they came up with seam sealing to mm-hmm. brands like the North Face and others go, oh, well, yeah, maybe this will work. Um, so, yeah, there's there's that gore connection. And I have still some garments. Actually, they're back in the gore. Gore actually has a, uh, a uh, archive, too, where they've got the early garments. So there's a Madden Mountaineering label garment, Generation 1, no seam tape. Oh, that's cool. They have, they have the, well, they had the, uh, the great technology is they literally wanted you, the manufacturer, to say, well, the seams, well, are probably going to leak. So here's some airplane glue. It works pretty well. That was seam sealing back then. Uh, go, go ahead, Mike. Don't. Uh, that's a good aside. Yeah, yeah. So, so Chase, that's, that's where we are with Madden today. You know, as I mentioned, you know, I, I get this issue of uh, Go Out magazine in the mailbox yesterday from Japan, and I'm leafing through, and the, you know, I get to uh, a section where they've got a, a bunch of T-shirts, all branded T-shirts, and you see a TNF T-shirt, and uh, they might have some other things like a Sierra Designs T-shirt, some things that are current, some things that are old, and there was a Madden a Madden equipment T-shirt right there, and. You know, it's it's great to start to see it come back again. I I just I have great trust in them, um, and they were uh, they're the right stewards on the you know on the planet Earth to be able to take this for the next journey. That's great. Well, I I don't want to take too much of your time. We I've already taken so much. But is there anything that we missed? I'm sure there is. But I guess I guess any other asides that that we need to make sure are on the record before we maybe wrap up or parting thoughts i don't know if this is an aside but i think from the early beginnings the 70s with patagonia and those were true core what we call core brands whether it was low alpine or, or whoever i mean it was it was made by enthusiasts people who actually went out and made Remember, Chenard used to make his pitons and his, you know, he was a blacksmith, but he made gear. I mean, when I worked for Outward Bound, it first came along. And the best thing that ever happened was to stand up shorts, you know, because it was the only thing, again, that would make it through the summer of rock climbing and hiking and those kind of things. And so my point is back then, so to speak, people made products that, were necessity. They were they were different. They they focused in on the actual need, and you know somewhere. And Mike, you can speak to it. Maybe in the nineties, whatever. There was this kind of transition from the core um, people, um, 
And even today, people who are true Patagonia believers, lack of a better word, it's like, well, you're a lifestyle company now. You're not a core company. And, and I would argue with that. They still make great products. And about half the clothes or most of the clothes I own are Patagonia, you know. But um, there was this transition from core, hardcore users, you know, not necessarily business people. Um, you know, when you work with companies like Patagonia and hardware and, and others, you, you kind of know all their, I don't want to call them dirty secrets, but you kind of see like it's not always a smooth ride. I mean, companies like North Face, I think I may be inaccurate here, but they've been bankrupt like at least three times, maybe more, you know, during the Odyssey days with Bill Simon, um, you know, and then finally bought by VF and all those kind of things. And, when you look at companies like Marmot, I mean, you know, those guys were over in Grand Junction and they were they were making, quote unquote, $400 Gore-Tex sleeping bags. They were the first. They used to have this uh, great ad. It was like this beautiful blue Gore-Tex sleeping bag and it was floating on some mountain lake. You've probably seen the picture and we're going, oh, wow, that's great. And then somebody, some engineer back in Gore in Maryland going like, uh bad idea because <laughs> it's not seam sealed <laughs> you know that kind of stuff but you know it, there was this big transition you know from core to lifestyle i mean i remember talking to the guy at north face store here in boulder a long time ago and, and uh, he says you know what the biggest shopping day is that we have here it's not christmas it's not black friday it's not any of this stuff it's parents' day at CU. Uh, sure. Like in the middle of October, because sure. it's like all the kids from California and Texas and all these people they go to CU go, uh, Mom, Dad, uh, it gets cold here. <laughs> I need a new ski jacket. I need a new Cortex jacket. And I mean, my, my three kids or whatever, when they were in school and whatever, it's like, can you get us something that's not North Face? Nothing against North Face, but everybody in Boulder High was wearing Gore-Tex jackets and same thing at CU. And the guy said, you know, I could probably double my sales if they just give me more T-shirts and more sweatshirts with a logo on them. So it, it became, still again, core products and, and no specific company, but from core products to a lifestyle, you know, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the participation, right? And what people are doing. Exactly. Done, done you know, the there, was this, there was this trend, right, as we were talking before about, you know, the done-in-a-day activities. And then by the time you get into the early 2000s, a lot of young people post-college, which are often the, the age group, right, that has a lot of energy behind the outdoor industry, they started to move to cities, right? There was this move to the cities, and that became all the excitement. Well, now that's when this kind of urbanization started to happen, right? You had people no longer carrying the Mountain Smith fanny pack at college, right? That had been their kind of outdoorsy briefcase and book bag. But now they were carrying a Timbuktu messenger bag in the city, right? Or a Chrome messenger bag. And from there, 
you know, the outdoors had that look had kind of fallen off a little bit, but when it came back and Dan, to your point, it came back with this lifestyle appeal and this kind of urbanization and this kind of active lifestyle, this holistic thing, right. And which is what we see now from the mid 2010s to where we are today. So, you know, I think or what I'm hoping now is, you know, one of these, the outcomes from people having been uh, maybe locked down a little bit for, you know, two years, having uh, worked remotely, you know, the way we're having a meeting today, uh, being able to incorporate technology to give them the benefits of free time, that they'll be able to go out and participate in some of the outdoor activities that require maybe a little bit more commitment. Right, a little bit more time commitment, and I think from that, that's when we're going to start to see uh, some more core products coming out again. I mean, you look at what's happening with overlanding. Overlanding might be the thing that starts to move people deeper into the backcountry. That then requires additional core products for whatever those activities might be away from the vehicle. I think that's the thing that we we kind of keep our eyes open for, you know, over the next ten years. That's great. I, I appreciate you kind of setting the stage for what the future might look like. Because uh, as we talk, I, I love covering the past, of course, the present, but always looking a little bit towards the future, which is what we hope our design program is, right? It's like getting our students into the archives, getting them out, recreating, and hopefully taking those two things and channeling that into, you know, what's the future of the industry going to look like? So, um, and then of course, you know, exposing them to conversations like this. It's super helpful. So this has been great. Um, I've learned a ton. If I were, this has been fun. If not to break in, but if I were going to no, give two pieces of advice to those who are in the program, which by the way is awesome because wish we'd had that back then. You know, it's like <laughs> could have saved a lot of time and trouble and money. But the first would be, you know, go out and use the product. You know, that sounds obvious, but again, like in my experience, a lot of people who design products never use them. It's more fashion, you know, lifestyle, and which, which is kind of where the market is. The other part is go out and use it, but don't rely on you because what you may like, nobody else does. Nothing personal. That's right. Get it, get it on as many different people as you can and whether it's a garment, whether it's a day pack or, or an ultralight pack or a sleeping bag or whatever, you know, get some different opinions and input on your design because, again, you're, you're not, uh, there, there, there's so many options and, and, and versions and needs and everybody, <laughs> sounds kind of funny, but everybody that you kind of run into is kind of like this frustrated designer. You know, out on the trail or, or wherever it is, like, well, if they only made the strap longer or they moved this pocket a quarter inch this way, or why they do this or why they do that. So there, there's there's plenty of options out there, but just use it and then get input on what you found. Yeah, and and I'll add, be a maker. Just just go out and make stuff. You know, yeah. if you, if you don't know how to sew, learn to sew. If you're a lousy sewer, and I'm the worst sewer in the world. Do something else. I'm really good with a staple gun. 
use a staple gun. There are lots of different ways to go out and be a maker. But the most important thing is to be fearless. You just have to go for it. So, you know, just try it and you'll figure out whether it works or whether it doesn't, but you'll learn something. There will always be an outcome, you know? That's great. That's, I mean, incredibly valuable feedback, um, whether a student in our program or anyone else who's listening to this, that's super valuable. Well, I just appreciate you both taking the time to, to share your thoughts and insights and, and to help piece together the history so other people can appreciate it. Um, well, thank you, and, Chase. Yeah, of course. Thank Thanks you. for giving us the time. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.